Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, June 27th, and for this Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about how the press, in particular cable news, has been covering the end of Roe versus Wade. And we'll talk about semaphores, grand ambitions, and also what is semaphore for exactly? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Monday, everybody. This is John Kelly coming in hot on Media Monday. Uh, This is the last week before 4th of July holiday. Hopefully everyone has plans. John, what are you doing for the 4th? For the 4th, we're going to be staying local, Peter. Um, Maybe a little fireworks if uh, if I can get my hands on them. And um, hopefully, you know, the boring traditional pool time, barbecue, family, etc. That's not boring. Oh, well, you're just saying that to to make me feel better. How about you? I'm sure you have much better plans. Um. I, Katie and I are going to Martha's Vineyard. Are you really? Wow, Obamaville. Our, our friends have like a condo there and we're going with them, uh, which will be nice. We're just going to ride our bikes around and say, happy 4th. Martha's happy Vineyard fourth. friends are the best friends, as we all know. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we're looking forward to it. Um, anyway, uh, we've had three days now to digest how the media writ large has been covering the... Um, the Roe v. Wade news, um, that it is no longer the law of the land. And states around the country have already stri- started to enact abortion restrictions. Um, I wrote about this with Dylan a little bit on Friday, but I don't know. Do you have any like macro takes on how the press has been covering the news? I mean, this is a huge story, obviously. I don't have any huge, astoundingly uh, new or brilliant macro takes, but here's one observation. I actually, I, I got a couple of um, of critical letters back to the email, the backstory that I send every Saturday. And the backstory is really an attempt for me to explain what's going on at Puck and talk about what um, the work we're doing and the story behind the story in many cases. And a couple of, of readers uh, were perplexed that I didn't dedicate the entire email to, to Roe. Um, and, and I totally understand that. This is an incredibly personal issue. It, you know, it's appalling on many levels and, and, and I feel personally connected to it too. But it was an interesting observation to me in part because it reflected a 
feeling that uh, all media should be covering this. That, that was the, uh, the perception that I had when I read these notes. And I think that that's, <laughs> I, I think that we're in for a fascinating time here because this is certainly going to be the media story of the next three months. I don't know about you, Peter, but in, in my text threads, we're not, we've not been talking about gas prices for the last three days. We've not been talking about Ukraine for the last three days. And, and I think that the, the timing of this ruling and the, the coincidence of the midterms is so significant that it is obviously a political story and it's a, a personal medical story, but it is also a media story to how these large media organizations covered. And you and Dylan certainly got into this a bit on Friday. And in some cases, how politicized uh, it will be by media organizations that would not normally cover this sort of issue. You know, in the Trump years, I feel like every media organization was either a resistance organization, became a resistance organization or, or a pro-Trump organization. And I really wonder, these notes I got on Saturday really made me wonder if some version of that chasm will, uh, will occur again where you're either, you know, credentialing yourself as being uh, pro-Roe or, or pro-Alito. Yeah, no, that's actually a really interesting thought. I mean, I th I think that, I think you're right that most of the mainstream press sort of became kind of resistancy, and you know, like newsrooms have been culturally liberal for <laughs> much longer before we came around. Um, but I do have a hunch that people, that newsrooms, editors, reporters will, you know, face pressure from their readers and viewers and from Twitter to be fully against this ruling, right? And like, certainly, like, I, I personally think it's draconian and bad, but a lot of people in this country have more complicated feelings about abortion than are represented in just like, are you for or against overturning Roe v. Wade? And that's sort of what I wrote about with Dylan on Friday, which is, is and I was watching MSNBC at the time, you know, they uh, one show had on a pro-life, uh, activist, and they were asking her, like, her response to the ruling, and obviously her, you know, the decades of activism that went into this, and the MSNBC host kept going back to the poll, which has been similar data across different polls over the last few years. Do you support or oppose overturning Roe v. Wade? And generally, that number is, like, around 60 to 65 percent. People support Roe v. Wade, right? So it's like a 60-30 like a issue, generally. Once you start to dig into um, different trimesters, for example, then it becomes a little more complicated. And a majority of Americans, a big majority, in fact, um, oppose second trimester <laughs> abortions. I, I mean, like the Mississippi law, for example, that was the Dobbs case at the heart of the uh, ruling on Friday, like that banned abortion after 15 weeks. A lot of Americans would be okay with that. Uh, you know, and like, that is just a point of view. I, again, don't personally agree with it, but like that's a point of view that was not represented in this MSNBC conversation and probably won't be represented by a lot of news organizations. I mean, there are just a lot of people who, for various reasons, um, you know, are queasy about abortion. And it's like the biggest thing about abortion in terms of public opinion is that it's not, do you support or oppose overturning Roe? Like most people don't support that. It's that most people live in this little gray area where it's, you know, it, it depends, like, is it someone I know? Is it rape and incest? Is it or first trimester or second trimester? You know, like, it's a very difficult thing. And I think the the Democratic Party, too, 
and progressive corners of the internet have basically, I think in recent years, especially have started to talk about abortion as if like playing right into conservatives' hands almost by saying abortion should be available all the time for whoever wants it. And most Americans don't think that way. I would be interested to see if the press talks to those sort of gray area voices over the next six months heading into the midterms and beyond. You made a, a couple of incredibly smart points. Uh, the the one that like, you know, I've, I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of days is the Republicans actually knew better, far better than the Democrats about these gray area issues and how and how complicated the, the conversation about abortion got when you got to uh, third trimester and 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 in ways that the Republican apparatus has been good at for a very long time, they knew how to sort of language weaponize the debate to to great effect. Um, you know, when I heard terms like heartbeat bans, it made me think of like Frank Luntz and, and the the death tax. You know, um, um, and your cable news point is is triggering in in some ways because it's hard not to feel, and I feel like we're we're very connected on on this front that. TV news, cable news, largely became a an increasingly stupidifying medium over the last five years. Like it was, it was um, a medium that benefited from screaming, from oversimplicity, from you know, it was almost like at its at its worst. And I don't, I don't want to oversimplify, so um, you know, uh, I'll, allow me to, to elaborate a bit. It had adapted a bit of like a Vince McMahon WWE type vibe, where there were good guys and bad guys, and they were and they were battling it out on, on intellectual platforms. And you made a really smart point in your conversation with Dylan about how this moment befits the sort of Chrislick strategy of really exploring the space in the center where it does get complicated, where you do have to figure out how do you how do you exchange information, how do you understand what either low information voters or religious voters. Or, uh, or activist voters on both sides really believe. I sincerely hope that happens. I, I am more than slightly concerned that this topic and, and just how, how poignant, how important this topic is, is going to potentially really force us back into an era of, uh, of shouting matches where, where hosts and guests have to signal to their audience what they truly believe in and that it's a zero-sum game and that they absolutely can't have a reasonable adult conversation with anyone who disagrees with them, that, that they are the enemy. And if, if that happens, I think it is a major business problem for these organizations. And I think you got that part absolutely right. I mean, I, Reuters just did their annual trust survey and they did trust in media among a bunch of different institutions. And CNN is now more distrusted than trusted and is less trusted than MSNBC, which it, it makes me sad. But during the Trump years, MSNBC and CNN did exactly what you were saying. There were good guys and bad guys, Republicans, and Democrats. And like, I'm sorry, like the the truth is, ne- is, is isn't in the middle between those two polls, but it's somewhere in between sometimes. And one reason people have lost trust in a lot of newsrooms um, over the last five years isn't just because Trump was yelling at them and calling them fake news. It's that, you know, most people don't see the world that way and understand that, like, there's not a clean answer to everything. People's political views and cultural views are a little ambiguous. And I think that presenting inconvenient, sometimes facts to viewers and readers is important because it makes you understand that, like, whichever way you're voting, People don't think like you, and you need to figure out ways to persuade people. Uh, you know, at, at the water cooler, at the the pool with the kids, when you're talking to someone's dad. I don't know. It's just like 
MSNBC certainly inhabits more of a fact-based universe than Fox News, but there is definitely some cherry picking of facts to feed their sort of boomer liberal audience. And it just makes me a little, this is not a new observation. It just makes me a little uncomfortable as a journalist. And I will give them props for this and CNN did the same thing. News organizations knew this ruling was coming down either Friday or Monday. And so it wasn't just panel pundit stuff. They had reporters like Cal Perry on MSNBC was positioned in St. Louis. A lot of newsrooms had reporters in the field and they were talking to people. And that's valuable and important rather than just like sending a reporter to like Union Square or like the White House where there's a protest. Like, I hope that cable starts to send reporters out into the world more rather than just doing the like pundit panel stuff. This is the, the, exactly the dynamic I'm talking about. NBC has all these really great reporters and the reporter will be in the field covering something like immigration or a shooting or some political rally and just doing good reporting. And then you go back to the host in the panel and it's just like opinion, cherry picking facts. And it's just like this weird, this is just true with MSNBC generally, like this conflict between the NBC News journalists who are doing the news and the pundits who like want to, and the, and the anchors sometimes who just want to present a certain narrative that might conflict with what the actual reporter on the ground is saying. And that is, that's not, again, not a new observation. That's been the case at MSNBC for a long time. It's just like, it's just weird. <laughs> it's a weird dynamic to me. And it's funny too with MSNBC in particular, because I think their audience, a part of their audience feels like they, they should be able to do better, you know, that, and, and by do better, I mean, be more down the middle, represent when there are inconsistencies in the narrative. The business reality is a little more challenging. MSNBC, it inadvertently or intentionally, uh, it picked its lane on the left and it, it lurched further left um, because there was an audience there and it was convenient. And in order to maintain its ratings, it may have to do that whether it wants to or not. Uh, by the same token, when you were when you were talking, I, I couldn't help but think that you know the New York Times is now talking about getting to 15 million paid subscribers in the next five years. That's five or so million more subscribers who are not going to be Wordle subscribers. You know, uh, there will be people who <laughs> many Republicans, as there already are certainly that that pay for the Times, but many people who supported this decision, and that's going to be it's a business challenge, but it's actually probably also a slightly existential one for, for many people who work there who do not want their content to be consumed by people who see the world so fundamentally differently. Uh, it's going to be an, an extraordinarily challenging and, and just weird, uh, fundamentally weird uh, dynamic to see play out. All right, John, I want to go to a break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to talk about semaphore, semaphore, semaphore. Never heard of it. <laughs> Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. 
The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life okay during the break did you google how to pronounce semaphore (laughs) (laughs) what is semaphore for people that don't know i think it's like a like a a telegraph conductor i no 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 i know that i know that no no i'm saying there might be people listening to this who don't know what the news brand that Ben Smith and Justin Smith are launching is called. So Semaphore is a international in outlook. I think genuinely nonpartisan media companies uh, founded by Ben and Justin Smith. They've uh, hired a couple other people and it's launching in the fall. And it's probably the, the most hyped media company. I'm trying to think of, of a candidate that we can remember like, like this period. <laughs> I was thinking of a political candidate. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure they oh, love a candidate. Oh, candidate. Oh, yeah. Comparison. Um, Tim Pawlenty. I don't know a, a, a candidate who was um, who, who, who was, <laughs> don't who, compare some for Tim Pawlenty. In the, um, in, the uh, in, in my mind, there we were in this in the semaphore play uh, stage of of the semaphore, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, uh, era. And I feel like part of why we're chatting about it now is you threw a Times article into Puck's general Slack last week that. Announced um, that they'd close their twenty-five million dollars Series A round. It's filled with a bunch of individual investors, um, wealthy people like Sam Bankman-Fried and, and David Bradley. But this has been a sort of quixotic thing. Ben Smith and Justin Smith are incredibly accomplished people. They're very smart. We're friendly with both of them. Blah blah blah. We laughed before we were taping because we both read the Politico story too that Jack Schaefer wrote that basically said like. Like memo to the New York Times, enough with this fucking semaphore stuff. Um, this is the, <laughs> the lead. Uh, well, someone slapped the New York Times at the restraining order. The premier newspaper of the ruling classes can't stop writing about semaphore. Justin and Ben Smith startup that aspires to be the premier website for the news hungry ruling classes. So I think semaphore is going to be something like the a modern version of um, of the FT meets the Economist meets the the New York Times and. They're going to launch with dozens and dozens of journalists, and they're going to launch this fall. And the other detail of the time story, and this is where I want to get your perspective, Peter, is that they're going to launch in D.C., um, with uh, which I think Dylan actually broke a couple uh, of months ago in Puck. Uh, but they're going to uh, be very focused on 
uh, on events. They, they hired a guy named Steve Clemens, who's really sort of the, the mayor down there when it comes to convening people. And Ben's doing an event with, I think, Tucker Carlson and Taylor Lorenz about trusted news, which we were just talking about before. So I have two questions for you. Are you going to go to this panel? Um, do you want to see Tucker and Taylor on stage? And do you think that the trust in news issue is going to be solved by new players in the news space? Oh, uh, second question is interesting. I need to think about that for a second. First question, I will not be leaving Los Angeles to go to Washington to go to this panel. Um, uh, it seems that, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it'll make news. Um, ben certainly loves um, and has a knack for making news and being in the conversation. Um my question around it is also just really about what Semaphore is generally. Like, I don't like I don't know what the like end product is supposed to be or what the point of view is. Not that I don't trust them to develop it. Um, and so, yeah, like they should have an events business. I get that. <laughs> and again, coming off this like trust survey uh, that Reuters did. I mean, again, and I've talked about this before on the podcast. The number one most trusted news brand in the United States is the BBC. <laughs> like every everything else, I think, you know, legacy news brands have lost a lot of trust over the last uh, five years. Um, and again, not just with conservatives, but with independents and Democrats. It's like, it's gone down across the board. Um, I hope that new startups like Semaphore and Puck, for example, um, that create a stronger, and I think, I think Semaphore is trying to do this. I mean, we have adjacent I think business models, although not exactly the same, but they want to create that like closer relationship between the newsroom and the journalist and the readers. And we're certainly doing that. And I think from what I'm hearing from people, like people love reading Puck and their, our open rates are great. And people like people are signing up left and right. That's not just hype. Like we're doing that because we respect the reader and we don't necessarily do what we were talking about earlier, which is like yell at them or cherry pick like facts that are inconvenient. And I don't think startups aren't necessarily going to solve the trust problem, but I think the combination of like new business models and having a like Chris Lichtian <laughs> back to basics kind of journalism is what I think a lot of people are striving to do right now. And I think there's a hunger for it. I just think there are a lot of conversations that happen in people's lives that they would never tweet about that they would never write about, but happen in DMs, happen on group texts. And, you know, they, those conversations often run up against what the, you know, guardrails of either political correctness are or what the received wisdom is. And I think that readers of all ages, races, and genders and classes want just people to tell the truth and be honest rather than like tell people what they want to hear. Um, and maybe that sounds too pie in the sky, but I hope that Semaphore does that because it certainly sounds like they're trying to rival, at least the way Ben's talked about it, the New York Times and CNN, because they're creating this like huge global plan. I mean, they're, they're even saying like, they're going to have like a 10 year vest for their employees. Like that's a long roadmap, but they're certainly have grand ambitions. 25 million bucks is, is a lot of money. And I think that they, they do have big ambitions and, and, you know, I, I think we're, we're fans and supporters, what, uh, this is a small market, so it's good for them. Will be, uh, will be good for us. But one one thought, though, you're totally right that we're in adjacent like philosophies about you know erasing the synapse between the the creator or journalist or storyteller and the consumer on the other side. But uh, I'm a 
humongous believer that business models end up dictating everything in life, in the world. Um, it's, it is the, the most deeply rooted motive you have. It, it's, it's where you really, you know, sort of sow the, the DNA of the company. And I noticed at buried to the end of the time story was that uh, a woman who'd been at The Athletic named Caitlin Roman was leaving the company after only a few months. And from what I understand about Semaphore, they're, they're not building a subscription business to start, um, which is when you would normally build a subscription business. So, um, and that's, you know, obviously it's a tool that we believe in significantly in Puck. And it, it may be one that Semaphore gets to down the line, but, um, you know, my experience in this is that you, you, if you have a chance to start from scratch, it's something that you, you bake into the DNA. So if you're not focused on subscriptions, and you're focused on advertising, and they have a master salesperson in Justin who's been a media CEO before and has relationships throughout the industry and certainly all over Washington, then you are selling big ticket items that rely on CPMs, that rely on traffic, that rely on distribution. I completely believe in the noble intentions of Semaphore. I think it'll be great. I think Ben's incredibly smart and obviously very, very capable. But you have to meet those CPMs. You have to match them. And I earnestly hope that they can avoid the pitfalls of other of other companies that had to meet their quotas to to guarantee uh you know the, the, the fees they were charging in advertising and I'm sure maybe at the beginning for launch sponsors there, there won't be uh baked in KPIs but over time I have to assume just being a realist that there will be and they'll have to find ways to prevent their teams from creating the work that travels fastest along the agenda because I think what we know now is that that doesn't make for uh, for good media, and it doesn't make for good business, and it doesn't make for a good, quixotic, nonpartisan, postpartisan, trusted media world that we're trying to figure out here. So I, I really hope that they can find ways to sustainably make a lot of cash without having to uh, lean into the perverse incentives of the the era that is just ending now. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. But I am I'm I know you are too. Like I'm rooting for them. Like I think the world really really needs more just like fact-based journalism and man i have new business models and like new formats frankly that's what that's what i'm interested to see like ben and justin both talked about like format um which is really important to me um so i'm curious to see like whether that what that means in terms of like video and audio or whatever they're thinking up so we'll see john have a great week you too peter i missed you it was fun talking with dylan but uh He's no Peter Hamby, so I missed the real thing. Have a good one, buddy. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.